The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. Fast Money starts right now, live from the NASDAQ market site overlooking New York City's Times Square. I'm Melissa Lear. Line up tonight, Tim Seymour, Dan Suzuki of Richard Bernstein, Dan Nathan, and Guy Adami tonight. Healthcare is flatlining this year, but one top technician says the bottom is in for these beaten down stocks. We'll tell you which names to buy. And we've got some after hours action. Qualcomm and Square reporting earnings moments ago. Those conference calls both underway. We'll bring you the latest details. But we start off with the late day market sell off. Check out the Dow seeking more than 150 points, closing near the lows of the day. This after Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell tempered concerns over falling inflation seems to raise the bar for a possible rate cut. So was the market pricing any rate cut? And is the Fed's next move the biggest risk to this record rally guy? Yeah, I do. I believe that's the case. You know, Tim talked about this last night. You weren't here last night. Carl Keatonia hosted know, the show I last heard. night. Unbelievable. Job. But one of the things Tim said is, you know, there's so much dovishness baked in. And there's nothing really the Fed can say tomorrow that's not already priced in. And the risk to the market is the downside. He was exactly right. Happened late in the day, but it happened nonetheless. So, you know, I've thought the Fed is the biggest risk to the market. I still think they are. I would like them to remove themselves from the equation for quite some time and let the market sink or swim on its own. They, they, they've, ingra- they've ingrained themselves far too much in the conversation. And maybe now, at least over the next couple of months, we can move forward and let the market let price discovery take over. Yeah, I completely agree with that. That makes a lot of sense to me. I think that, uh, you know, I agree. The risks are to the downside for the Fed. And I think going forward, this is going to be one of those meetings where you're never going to talk about again. After today is done, we're never going to talk about this meeting again. Why? Because it didn't really matter. I think that's going to be the case through the rest of the year. Until later in the year, it's very likely you're going to start to see some of those inflation pressures pick up. up. Uh, Jay, Jay Powell actually talked about this on the conference call that, you know, the downward pressures on inflation are transient. And when they start to come back and we start to get close to that 2% number, I think the market's going to be a lot more focused on what the Fed's going to do. And I think that talk of a cut is going to be, you know, kind of a distant memory at that. He was very explicit. There's really no reason in his view, in the policymakers' view, to move either way on rates at this well, point. Well, there's, there's certainly no reason to cut rates. So let's be clear here, folks. And, and, and I say this over and over again because it's important. A growth scare is a lot worse than an inflation scare. I'd love to see a little bit of an inflation scare here because it does mean that actually there's be some underlying strength of the economy, pricing power, you name it. The Fed is trying to actually restore asset prices. There are those. Guy brings this up all the time. If you look at asset prices relative to GDP right now, we're at a scary high number. And so the Fed has to do a, almost a miraculous job of beginning to try to cool off an asset bubble while stepping out of the way of fueling it. And so, um, look, I I think the market will, what Dan is basically saying, I believe, is, hey, you know what, tomorrow the market's going to wake up and realize that the Fed did almost nothing, but that if people were pricing in a a, a rate cut, um, you you probably should be holding your breath. To me, the market still runs the risk of a very strong payroll number on Friday because there's seasonal effects here. Look at the ADP number today, and look how weak the first couple numbers were in the year. I think you snap back, and then people have to be thinking about a Fed that nobody is priced in. So, again, today was about a Fed that people thought might be easing, and maybe they're not. Because the risk is to the upside look, when it comes to look the, the economy. Rates, the Anybody that's rates? calling for a, a rate cut outside of the White House doesn't know a whole lot about how the markets function. Sorry. Right. I mean, we also had, uh, Kayla had reported, come on, came on during the 2 o'clock hour power lunch saying that uh, a China trade deal 
is likely by next Friday, according to her sources. Uh, we have that. We have oil going higher. Yeah. I mean, How about infrastructure? Inflation, in, in a possible uh, infrastructure I mean, bill. There, there all will be no bi- sort of well, inflationary <clears throat> There's no bipartisan pressures. deal for anything that's going to happen before the election. So you can talk about infrastructure. Okay, but it's not going to happen. Okay. So take that out. Take that but out. No, but the trade stuff's really important. Yeah. And Jay Powell actually spoke about this in the Q&A. He actually said something really interesting. He said, yes, there is chatter that this could happen at some point in the near future. But I think what, just kind of paraphrasing, economies don't move on a dime. We talk about this a lot, right? And we're starting to see some better data because I think some corporates, some sovereigns, they're starting to say, okay, we're going to have a deal at some point in 2019. But some, much of the enthusiasm for a deal might be baked into the market at this point. Um, let's, let's be really clear about that. And I'll just say this, you know, um, you know, there's all this talk all week about an insurance cut. What does that mean when you have a U.S. economy kind of plugging along the way it is, obviously outperformed in Q1? Um, you know, that to me seems like a very, very dangerous situation. So you talk about a Fed that had the potential to derail the market, which it did last year. They reflated risk assets the world over by the pivot. And, and global central banks did that over the last four months. Now, obviously, the risk is to the downside. There's not much else, whether it be trade, whether it be the talk of an infrastructure deal that can, I think, the inflate. The risk is to the downside for the markets. Oh, yeah. I How mean, about rates, though, Dan, almost near zero. I know. And, and an economy that's doing just fine. I mean, corporate earnings, we, we, we've reached. Doesn't that, make, expectations doesn't that make you really nervous that when we think about all this talk about Fed funds rate that literally topped out at this cycle at two and a half percent in 2007 at the high of the stock market before it plunged 50 percent, Fed funds was at five and a half percent. And back in 2000, before it plunged 50 percent, it was at six and a half percent. Am I concerned we're out of bullets? I'm not, what's the question? It feels like it, right? Like, so, so where do you go? Because Look, we I'm, have $10 trillion in sovereign debt all over the globe that's yielding negative, you know, has a negative yield on it. I, I, I'd like to see Fed funds rate at 5 percent for the concept of normalization. And we're still, as far as I'm concerned, and somewhat accommodative. I realize the Fed's at neutral, but you can't tell me with a 2 percent economy. So I, I think the answer to that is... I don't want to see rates at 5% because I don't think that the global economy could, could take that. I also don't think that the inflationary forces we had a decade ago are the same ones we have today. I think we have a very different structural global economy, and I think that there are deflationary forces that are really coming from technology, yes, but they're coming from globalization. Right, but you want to solve to get to that 2% inflation rate when we know that the deflationary forces are entirely different because of technology. We'll That's never the get point. to those rates. That's we'll right. never get to those rates, and will the Fed ever move? I mean, unless we understand, to uh, unless we understand what what will bring the inflationary pressures back so we're above one and a half percent well that's the thing that i think that no one's talking about today everybody's saying it's got to be one of two things growth does well and we get inflationary pressures or growth grows away and there's no inflation but i think what about the scenario that always happens in the later part of a cycle where growth is slowing but inflation's also picking up i think that's a possible scenario that you could look to you know 12 months out and i think if you put that in the fed in a typical late cycle rock in a hard place that's the most difficult thing for a market to tend, contend with is slowing growth and rising inflation. Why are we going to get rising inflation pressures? Well, just look at median CPI. Median CPI is very high today. Uh, I think today on the call, you know, Powell referenced, uh, you know, trim mean CPI, which also is above 2%. There's a lot of measures of CPI that are still very high. You know, yes, you're dealing with lower oil prices, but those are transient. And the technology stuff, yes, technology has deflationary pressures, but it also has inflationary pressures as well. Just look at the price of an iPhone. Just look at Netflix prices. Just look at all these different subscriptions. They're all starting to raise their prices now. And I think that that's something that could actually turn the needle on these things. I mean, I've said it. I'll say it again. They have inflation and all the wrong play. I I believe the Fed is using a 1970s playbook for a 2019 economy. And to Tim's point, and we've said this a hundred times, technology is the biggest deflationary force 
in the history of mankind. And it's happened at, at light speed over the last couple of years. The Fed is fighting an enemy. They can't win. They're fighting a land war in Asia. They'll never win it. They're focused on the wrong things. You said they'll never move. Yeah, you're probably right. If they use this as exactly their Exactly right. And again, I'll say, I'll say it again. They have inflation in all the wrong places. They should change some of their metrics. Well, they, and I'm the they only... Are. They're trying to. But I'll say this quickly. I think they were doing everything right, by the way, in October. I'll say it again. I don't think they were derailing the economy. I think they were trying to strengthen the structure of okay, our so economy. Maybe what? the market's weakened, but they're two different Let things. Let me ask you this at this point, and I think I've asked you guys this question before. How are we different right now versus where we were in October? Right. We are has the above Fed the levels in terms of the markets, right? The Fed has changed. What else has changed? China's in better shape, right, because stimulus has kicked in. What else has changed? Well, right, so just first on that Fed change question, because guys saying, I, I would have been happy to see the Fed hold the line and have us believe they're in a tightening bent, and, and the markets might have gotten ahead of the Fed, and who, knew, who knows, yeah. really. Um, has the Fed changed or did the data change? And, and I think, look, you can't push the Fed, you can't blame the Fed for being behind the curve because that's what they do. They're followers. They're not a leading indicator. They're never going to be a leading indicator. So um, by October, when they were leaning on, we've got to tighten, we've got to tighten because that's their mandate, um, I think it was appropriate that they changed tune. So I, I look at a market now that has recessed earning expectations. Um, we've seen in a lower rate environment that equity should go higher, and that's happened multiple times in the last five years when people were poo-pooing earnings and the stock market went higher. I think if the Fed stays out of the way, and we talked, I don't believe that's going to happen. But if they stay out of the way, the market goes higher. Well, they're, they're behind unless you want them to do an insurance rate cut. Yeah. I don't want that. <laughs> In but which case, then, then you're no expecting Fed them to be ahead. No Fed has ever done that. No, no Fed outside of the Volcker Fed has ever been a leading indicator. So I completely agree with Tim. Why focus on them to look, take your cue points? They're going to tell you, if you tell me what growth and inflation are, I can tell you exactly what the Fed's going to do. So they're going to lag what, the overall, what everybody already knows. So bring, bring it back to the stock market. So we know the S&P made a new intraday high today. We know the NASDAQ obviously made new intraday highs o- over the last week on numerous occasions. One thing that's really stuck out to me, look at the Russell 2000. It's obviously pretty centric here to the U.S. It's pretty uh, obviously focused, maybe 20% or so on financials here. Look at the outperformance of the S&P. When I see the Russell 2000 consolidate like that, given all the complacency and basically all the enthusiasm about a reflation of global growth, and I see this indice kind of lagging to me, I actually say to myself, there's something there here. I don't love these kind of little trickled highs in the, in the broad indices here because don't forget, man, I mean, like, think back to October. You know, the S&P went down 20% in a straight line over two months, and no one thought it could happen then. But I would say the opposite, Dan. I mean, I would say the, the S&P has rallied, you know, right off those lows to all-time highs again. No one thought this was going to happen. I, I mean, I, I would argue that both moves are extreme and almost things we'll never see again. But, but I, I think we got to a place where markets really were misassessing the global economy. Right. And, and I think we've gotten back to why does that now mean we have to trade off because we were too high then when we well, sold off. And in fact, we say that that wasn't appropriate. Here's another question. That makes sense. If I had said to you, Guy, just for argument's sake, you. Welcome back, there. by the way. Thank you. Know, you. When you're it's not here, to we be miss back. you. It's really great to be back. <laughs> I just mentioned that if at I 5, said, 10, If I said 11, to you yesterday that Apple's going to blow it out of the water when it comes to the reaction to its earnings Thank report. You whether for that. Or not, whether yes. or not the Caveat. earnings report... M- merited the move in Apple that we saw today, that it was going to be up 6% or so today, and that the Fed was going to be on perma-hold, basically on the sidelines, patient forever for the foreseeable future. How would you think the markets would have reacted? Fix trades down to 11.5. The S&P closes up 30 handles. Google so makes a bottom and it, we got- it reverses... We got what we wanted, so, right? So you, when I was in college, I, you, we used to have to read what books. What school did you go to? 
Georgetown University, <laughs> Washington, D.C. Great school, Good by the spot. way. Ranked number 12 in Forbes in the, in the recent Well, not polls. in the 40s when you were there. <laughs> no, when I was there in the 40s, it wasn't even a, a, a verified yeah, accredited yeah, yeah. university. Anyway. Can I continue, please? please. Am I allowed? Yeah. used to read a book, and every once in a while you had to highlight something. You had to put yeah. one of those little tabs on a page. Like a post Today, Exactly. To, today might be one of those days. May 1st, we go back. That was a critical day for the broader markets. I'm not suggesting that. I'm just saying... Put a little tab on this with the reversals we've seen. Dan is poo-pooing me the way you just said poo-poo. You're doing it to me now. But I'm telling you, the, the reversals we saw today on the day today. after Apple reports, to your point, maybe it's very interesting. All right, let's stick here with the uh, rising risks to the market. Check out the chart of the day. The ISM manufacturing index hitting its lowest level since 2016. This growth indicator showing no signs of a rebound, even as stocks have been grinding higher. The last GDP print was a whopping 3.2%. Dan, you think... Investors are too optimistic at this point. Yeah, I think this is the answer to your question, you know, what's different between now and October? And I think this is the big difference. Back then, ISM was going up. It was very high. Today, it's very low. It's actually at the lowest level since 2016. So I think a lot of the people are very excited that you got some rebound in some of the recent indicators. But I think the ISM is clearly telling you that the fundamentals are actually still weakening. Now, now, like this earnings season is a great example of how when the fundamentals are weakening at some point, short-term expectations get very low and you beat those expectations, but the underlying trend is still of weakening growth. And that's the most important dynamic. We know we got, this isn't just a, glo- uh, a U.S. phenomenon. If you look at the global PMIs that came out today, you had the, the, no, the highest percentage of com- com- countries so far that have reported uh, that are below 50 than you've had in the last few years. Mm. So I think that all these things are saying the underlying fundamentals are weakening. Yes, China's getting better. Yes, we like China. But outside of China, the underlying growth story is getting weaker. And that's the biggest difference between now and last October to us. I I think really important, good chart, agree with the analysis. I I would also, though, say um, the U.S. was the one economy that was lagging every other one on the way down. And it doesn't surprise me that we're actually starting to see some of the impact of, again, that stick stuck in the the bicycle spokes because, uh, you know, the U.S. economy, the U.S. market, everything about how we've seen this in terms of the global leading indicators. This late last week, um, we started to get a rebound in European PMIs. We started to get a rebound in local GDP prints uh, in the European Union. Uh, We've seen the numbers coming out of China. So um, the question really is, if we are done with this trade deal and if we're at a place where central banks in unison around the world are throwing everything they can, while that may not be healthy, Guy, to, to people that are theorists about economic policy in the long term deleterious effects, if I may, uh, of that. Um, I I do think in the short run, it's very difficult to argue against equities. I, I do. Even though, as a trader, we get to these moments where we get overbought into a Fed meeting. Well, I guess the, the thing that I'm not saying is that you should uh, be cautious on equities. I actually, our base case is that equities still go higher, but I think the equities that you own today should be different and your overall risk tolerance for equities should be lower today. So, if you know, the time to be uber bullish and max, max bullish on equities is when profits are accelerating, liquidity is actually improving, and no one wants to own stocks. That's not the case today. In fact, I would argue that it's more the opposite of that today, and that's why I think you shouldn't be max bullish today even if you think yeah. the markets are going to go higher. And at the same time, because the profit cycle is slowing, I think you don't want to chase the cyclicals here. Even though they've had a good run so far this year, I think you actually want to focus on higher quality companies and companies that have more stable earnings growth, even though you think that the market's going to go higher. You concur? I, well, I do concur. I do think there's risk to the downside as well. And, you know, we're looking for leadership. Think about some of the semis that have reported. Think about some of the things with Intel, Micron. I mean, mm. forget about Qualcomm. That's his own story. Texas Instruments. They were not particularly bullish. I mean, if they are a leading indicator. Well, 
they're leading indicator when everything's going higher. Then people right. want to discount it when things <laughs> exactly. are going down. Can't have it both ways there, people, right? Right. Thank you. Coming up, we're all over the after hours movers. Qualcomm and Square both under pressure after reporting earnings. We'll bring you the latest details. Plus, healthcare is flatlining this year, but one top technician says now could be your best chance to buy these stocks. He'll be here to explain why. And we are awaiting pricing for Beyond Meat, the plant-based food company expected to start trading tomorrow. But are its plant patties really grade-A burgers? Ooh. We'll put them to the ultimate fast money test. We are live from Times Square in New York City. Much more fast money right after this. Wouldn't it be great to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one place? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, makes it easy. I use it to put my investment account and 401k accounts into one hub and get expert tips that help me confidently manage my money. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. Whether you're a seasoned investor or are looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. Securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors, and it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insight to look at your wealth in its entirety. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Welcome back to Fast Money. We got an earnings alert on Qualcomm. The chipmakers conference call is going on right now. Let's get to Josh Lipton for the details. Josh. So, Melissa, right off the top of this call, uh, Qualcomm CEO Steve Malenkoff talking about this uh, settlement with Apple. Uh, he called that settlement, in his words, a win for both companies. Take a listen to what Malenkoff had to tell analysts. This represents a significant milestone as it is Qualcomm's first patent license agreement directly with Apple. In addition, we believe our resolution with Apple enhances our position with respect to resolving our ongoing licensing issues with Huawei. We will also be supplying modems to Apple for future devices under the terms of our new multi-year chipset supply agreement. Uh, now, uh, Qualcomm is also saying here their financial guidance for Q3 is going to include revenues of between $4.5 and $4.7 billion. That results from the settlement and does consist uh, of a payment from Apple. Uh, they go on, though, to talk about guidance here, uh, Melissa, and there the Q3 guidance at the midpoint is $5.1 billion. Uh, that does come in below what the street was looking for. Analysts had modeled something closer to $5.23 billion. You know, our own John Ford quickly caught up with Qualcomm CEO Steve Malenkoff just to get more color on that guidance. And Malenkoff called out uh, specifically weakness in China impacting guidance. That is a theme on the call. Other executives harped on that, too. They think uh, maybe they say, in their opinion, that's due to a pause there in advance of a 5G rollout. But they are seeing a handset unit decline slightly, Melissa. All right, Josh, thank you. Josh Lipton in San Francisco with Qualcomm. Shares are down about 2% here, but keep in mind the huge... Stock rate forty eight. I know exactly, exactly. So it's like Qualcomm sinks on earnings. Well, it's up fifty percent on the back of the Apple settlement. A two percent move in the after hours is a victory for for anyone that's holding these shares. And if you think about the stock, not only did it go to fresh highs, but it it, it went to all time highs. I mean, even at the peak of of where people believed in Qualcomm's pricing power and they did not have these issues with their core uh, suppliers. I mean, this was a this was a sixty five dollars, seventy dollars stock. So um, I I think if you think about way the market has priced in their margin 
ability in 5G modem chipsets. Um, that's great news. But at this point, I mean, how much is left? Right. So the question is, given the commentary about Q3 and really for the balance of the year, it kind of mimics a little bit what we heard from Intel, kind of different products here. Um, listen, these guys are very well set up for um, for 5G, but we know that 5G phones will not be deployed in any meaningful manner for at least a year or two. So when you start thinking about when does that ordering come, it comes at some point in the back half or early next year. This stock needs to consolidate some of these gains. Guy and I were just looking at that breakout level on that huge gap on that settlement is somewhere in the high 70s. And those are good spots. If you feel like you've missed something in the near term and you're thinking about longer term, you want to get it back towards that long term breakout. And I would say that's 77, 78 bucks. Yeah. Discount what they say about China. I, I would because yeah. I don't think I have I don't think that Qualcomm is an earnings story now. I think to your point, this is a 5G story over the next you know, 12 to 18 months. So I think you discount this quarter, but I think Dan's right. I think we, consolidation in the mid 70s. We've got some breaking news here on Beyond Meat. It's pricing ahead of its trading debut tomorrow. Leslie Pickers in the newsroom with the details. Leslie, hey Melissa, this is according to a person familiar with the pricing. I'm told that Beyond Meat is pricing at $25 a share, 9.625 million shares. So that implies an offering size of about $241 million and a market cap of $1.5 million. Now, remember, they boosted their range earlier in the week. So that $25 comes at the high end of their new range. So clearly lots of demand for this alternative to meat product. Melissa. What are its comps, Leslie? I mean, what did they say in the roadshow about the comps for Beyond? So they didn't say anything specifically about the comps in the IPO's prospectus. And there aren't really any direct comparables for this kind of alternative meat product. But you can look to specific uh, publicly traded companies that do produce these kind of niche uh, food products that are distributed like Beyond Meat distributes in uh, retailers such as grocery stores as well as restaurants and partnerships and so forth. So no direct comps for this one, but if you look on a, a backward multiple basis, on a market cap to revenue basis, you're looking at, you know, 16 times last year's revenue of about $88 million. All right, Leslie, thank you. Leslie Picker back in the newsroom. 16 times last year's Revenue of $88 million. Well, um, beyond meat. Let's see. What do I do with this? Uh, I, I think I think the bottom line here is this is a very different story in the IPO landscape we've digested, pun intended, over the last couple of weeks. Um, I do think this is a case where this is a niche brand that clearly has brand and pricing power. What do you want to pay for a brand? Um, I, guys should know because I imagine you've been beyond no, meat. No, this is not, so, not. I, mean, I am not oh, their target on. audience. You You're know not? that's true. You're not? Dan has something you know, I, to say. I, no, I think it's I think it's interesting because we've spent the last few months talking about like consumer brands that are coming to the public market mm-hmm. that we all know and use. They're all like on our phones and that sort of thing. stuff. Uh-huh. It's really interesting. Here's something that's very niche. You know, we could even talk about Levi's. What was that multiple relative to the comps? That's why you asked her about what are the comps for this? You know what I mean? It's such a niche sort of thing. You can't talk about the total addressable burger market. That's not a new thing <laughs> that we're going to come up with because I have to assume that active burger eaters are literally it's going to be like one or two percent are going to be enticed by this sort of product. You know what I mean? So if they did 88 million in sales, they're going to have a lot of competition. Who buys this IPO? I mean, the other ones are growth managers, tech managers. Who buys Beyond Meat? Thoughts, Dan? I think you're buying the secular growth story, right? There's a whole movement of sort of that millennial thinking behind sort of sustainability. Dan, do you eat meat? 
I, I do. I love meat. <laughs> Good. But welcome I, to the desk. But, but I have, but I have a lot of, uh, I have a lot of vegetarians in the extended family, and okay. uh, you oh. know when they come over, I have, I have Beyond Chicken and oh, I have Beyond oh, Meat yeah, in beyond the fridge. Yeah, and it's actually right. a good. It's it's a premium product, um, but it, it's the closest thing you're going to get to eating meat that you can buy at Whole Foods right. or whatever. So I think it's pretty good. But the, for for a comparable, I think the next person that come, next company to come that needs company needs to come to market is Tofuti. Tofuti is coming back, and that's going to go public <laughs> at. Uh, a strong you won't be doing a taste test for that. So. Well, well, I don't know. Well, we're doing a taste test for Beyond Meat oh, later oh, on. Oh, come on. Oh, my yes. goodness. We're going to put it to the Careful ultimate guy. test later on. Dan here is apparently open-minded. Dan Suzuki's open-minded. Dan Nathan Nick is not. not. <laughs> Make so, not. Maybe. That was good. That was I'll put anything. So you won't want to miss that. I'm Melissa Lee. You're watching Fast Money on CNBC, First in Business Worldwide. Here's what else is coming up on Fast. This billion-dollar cannabis deal could be about to set the entire weed universe on fire. Well, it's bringing together the two largest brands in the United States. On the East Coast, it's Cureleaf. On the West Coast, it's it's uh, Select. We'll tell you why it might be easier than you think to spot the next pot target. Welcome to Good Burger, home of the Good Burger. Can I take your order? Beyond Meat is getting ready to make its public debut tomorrow. But is it really serving up a good burger? We'll put it to the ultimate fast money test. There's much more right after this. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Fast Money. While the rest of the market has rallied to record highs this year, the healthcare sector has flatlined up just 3%. For more on what's weighing on the sector, let's get to Bob Bassani at the New York Stock Exchange. Hey, Bob. Hello, Melissa. Uh, healthcare is indeed suffering. You know, it is the worst performing sector in the S&P this year. It's up just a little more than 2%. Yikes, look at this. It's lagging way behind technology, industrials, consumer discretionary, communication services. They're up more than 20%. Healthcare is suffering, not so much because any fundamentals are deteriorating. It's mostly suffering because the sentiment is deteriorating. Sentiment has been slumping, for example, in pharmaceuticals over concerns that Democrats will put pressure on drug pricing. So the big drug names are Bristol-Myers, Pfizer, AstraZeneca, Lilly, Merck. They're down or underperforming this year. And sentiment is also deteriorating in healthcare providers like the HMOs and the Medicare and Medicaid uh, providers like Humana, Cigna, Centene, United Health, over concerns about Medicare for all, even though the chances of passage of such a bill are slim. The House Rules Committee, however, did hold the first ever hearings on Medicare for all and single payer just this week. So here's the bottom line. This whole Medicare for all is a very low probability event. But the industry and investors seem to view it as an existential threat to the whole model. 
Most analysts will tell you Medicare doesn't pay the full cost for Medicare patients. They don't pay profitable rates. It's an eternal complaint. So if you outlaw private insurance, the whole health care system comes under severe stress. Again, it's a sentiment issue right now. Back to you, Melissa. All right, Bob, thanks. Bob Pisani. Our next guest says the bottom may be in for health care, and there's two names in this space you can play for a catch-up. Let's go off the charts with Mark Newton of Newton Advisors. He's over at the Plasma. Hey, Mark, what are you looking at? Hi, Melissa. So I think health care can actually outperform substantially in the weeks and months to come, and so I want to show you a couple different charts to take a look at this. As, as Bob Pisani said, this has been the worst performing sector this year, but yet it's actually turned in the best performance of any of the 11 major sectors of the S&P in the last week. So it's only up about 2.5% for the year, but it was up over 1% coming into today over the last five days. Here is the XLV versus the broader market. As you can see, we've got an extremely uh, oversold versus the broader market just in the last year or so. We've pulled back substantially. However, we've started to turn up pretty aggressively, and if anything, my thinking is that you know, we really snap back and capture some of this mean reversion that should be possible during a time of very seasonally uh, bullish seasonality for, for health care. So the bottom line is this. We have technical situation where things got very oversold. We're starting to bottom out. Uh, seasonally, May through July represent the best months for health care. Over the last five years, they've averaged more than 1% in each of those months, May, June, and July. Uh, third is that Biden all of a sudden now is the front runner for the Democratic Party. And as we know, uh, he's not likely going to go towards a uh, Medicare for all or a single payer. So if anything, you know, my thinking is and what we've heard is that he might tweak the Obamacare model. So the combination of those technically very oversold at a time when the markets had four great months, uh, you know, leads me to think that near a seasonally bearish time for stocks that health care should be the play. Here are two stocks that I like to, to really take advantage of this possible mean reversion. One is Bristol-Myers. So here the stock has pulled back about 15% just from the highs in March alone. Of course, the ongoing acquisition of Celgene is going to wrap up sometime in the third quarter. Bristol beat pretty handily in earnings over the last week, and now we've started to move to the highest level we've seen in the last 10 days. So technically this has gotten oversold, quite oversold. It's dropped down from 70 down to levels in the low 40s. We've bottomed out at exactly the same levels that we saw both in last October and also in January, and now we've turned up to new, new weekly highs. So this is also important. So I think Bristol-Myers can rally to the high 40s, and that would be one way to, to really play this. The other is Pfizer, and everybody knows Pfizer. You take a look at Pfizer, really, it peaked back in 1999-2000. It's not been above that level since then. So what has it done this year? Just since last... Uh, November, December, we've pulled back from levels right near in the high 30s, about 10%. So if anything, it's a very good risk-reward at a time when this sector should be starting to turn higher at a time to buy Pfizer and think this stock can move back into the low 40s. So those are two picks that I would, I would choose for mean reversion. I like Bristol-Myers and I like Pfizer. Uh, healthcare technically definitely starting to show some signs of near-term momentum. It's going to take a lot more in the long run for this sector to turn higher. But for me, it's a great risk reward at a time when a lot of these tech stocks have gotten very overbought heading into the month of May and starting to show, you know, revenue deceleration and this and that. So this group's really starting to show very good signs of outperformance near term. Yeah, Mark, I happen to agree with you. Bristol-Myers notwithstanding. But I guess my pushback to play devil's advocate would be, you know, in terms of the RSIs, these stocks could go sideways for a while. The RSIs could flatten out. Right. And we could be in a six-month period where they go slightly they go sideways to slightly lower. Is that a possibility as well? Well, I'm, I'm looking at a couple things. I'm looking specifically at really the next 
three to five weeks. And my thinking, if the market shows any sort of signs of peaking out, the pharmaceutical space in particular should offer a lot of outperformance. So on an absolute basis, though, stocks like both Bristol-Myers and Pfizer were positive today and really a bad tape. So these stocks hit new multi-day highs. So near term, I think they work. And really, over the next three to five months, I also think they can outperform. Mark, thank you. Good to see you. Mark Newton of Newton Likewise, Advisors. Uh, Dan Suzuki, you like healthcare here? Yeah, I think it's a great buying opportunity. I think that both Bob and Mark are telling you the same thing. I think they're saying that there's, they're echoing that sentiment. Bob's whole thing was about how the fundamentals are still solid for healthcare, uh, yet this is all sentiment driven. And that's absolutely true. I think that healthcare has always been a lightning rod for political criticism. But if you look at the underlying fundamentals, they're probably some of the best in the S&P. They're one of the few sectors in the S&P that has a very good estimate revision trends, sales revision trends, positive sales growth, positive earnings growth. I mean, that's a rare phenomenon to see this quarter. And, and, and if you look historically when you, at the multi-year periods of outperformance and underperformance, the number one driver of the underperformance periods, the longer secular underperformance periods, are really a function of profit cycles accelerating. So if you look at the 90s, because the reason I looked at the 90s was because everybody was talking about health care reform, the Clinton health care reform proposals. If you look at the 90s, though, the two periods of underperformance were in the early 90s and 1999. Those periods were, had nothing to do with health care reform. I mean, there were a small component of it, but the big component was that we had two profits recessions and you had huge rebounds and profits coming out of it. That's not a good environment for health care. But is that the environment we're in today? No. Health care uh, profits today are decelerating and that's a great time to be in healthcare, which is actually the longest, best performing sector of all time and has, has cheap on every single valuation metric out there, which you can't say for any other sector out there. I would just say simply, if you think about healthcare as having been defensive during periods where people were questioning the EPS exposure of the overall market, this is that time. Think of the move down in things like United Healthcare and whatnot, although it snapped back, that's a name actually I still would be buying on this weakness. Well, I just mentioned one thing about the XLV because I know that Mark was charting it a little bit. I mean, it's had three 10% drops in the last year, so it doesn't feel particularly defensive when you consider, I mean, that's one more than the overall market has right here. Given that defensive nature, you know, I don't know. I mean, it seems to me um, that it's forming a bit of a wedge here and there does seem to be political risk here. Coming up, check out Square shares getting flushed after its earnings report. CEO Jack Dorsey speaking on the call right now. We will bring you the very latest. Plus, Curly's billion-dollar pot deal sending that stock soaring today or cannabis king. Tim Seymour here says more marijuana mergers could take the space to pot paradise. He'll break it all down when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Shares of Cureleaf soaring after the Massachusetts-based pot giant acquired cannabis oil manufacturer Cura Partners, which owns a big marijuana product brand called Select, in an all-stock deal nearing a billion dollars. Cureleaf Executive Chairman Boris Jordan gave his take on the deal on Squawk on the Street today. Well, it's bringing together the two largest brands in the United States. On the East Coast, it's Cureleaf. On the West Coast, it's, it's uh, Select. Select is the largest distributed wholesale brand in the country. It's kind of like buying Coca-Cola 30 years ago for a billion dollars. The combined companies have market value of over six and a half billion dollars as today's price. And it will have on 2018 revenues of $205 million, which makes it the largest revenue company in the world in cannabis. More than $6 billion worth of big pot deals have been inked this year. And with so much wheeling and dealing in the space, we thought we'd get our cannabis king, Tim Seymour, to lay out what the next big pot deals could be. He's over at the plasma to break it down. Tim. 
Yeah, hey, Mel, high times in the cannabis space, for sure. By the way, who's CEO we have tomorrow. So, okay, this deal by Cureleaf, as we talked about, this is East Coast, West Coast rappers getting together. Again, you've got Massachusetts-based Cureleaf, who's all over the East Coast, getting together with the biggest West Coast play. I don't need to get into that. Great deal for those guys. Remember what we had two weeks ago? Again, this was Canopy buying acreage in the U.S. This was the key to this deal, is this defined the structure in which Canadian players might legally be able to get into the U.S. market. How about Harvest? Remember the deal these guys did. Ultimately, these guys, again, Steve White, been on our show. We talk about how these guys have been growing quietly. They ultimately team up with Verano. This is a big, big multi-state operator. It's a land grab, he told us. The Cresco Labs Origin House deal, this was a very exciting deal because, again, this brought together one of the biggest multi-state operators with arguably the biggest distribution company in the space in a world where brands matter. If you ask every one of these companies, that's what they've been doing and what they've been working on. They've been building brands. So let's look at some of the charts of companies that might be in play now, not necessarily to be taken out, but also might be feeling some sense of urgency. Hey, what are we doing? Aurora, one of the big Canadian LPs, which has had a pretty nice run, certainly come down off the highs. And you can see a case here where some people have been just generally trading out of the Canadian names in favor of the U.S. These guys filed a $750 million shelf registration about a month ago, which has people saying, hey, when are they going to do something? Here's somebody else to think about. If we look at the next chart, we have, there it is, Afria, another one of the big Canadian names. Now, we remember back Kind of last year, this was a case where this company was in some trouble over the perception that they were buying some bad assets. There were some inside deals. Whatever went down, the bottom line is this is still a massive player with good assets and producing assets. What are they going to do? They've been kind of topping out here also like some of the Canadian players. Question is, how do they take the next move higher? It's probably through some acquisition or certainly people might be taking a look at them. Then let's look at GTI. We've had Ben Kovler on our show. These guys are arguably one of the best run U.S. multi-state operators. They certainly made a, a push into bar. That's a brand play, but I would not argue that's a massive strategic play. It's just a company that certainly knows how to extend their presence in a brand. So the real question here is, folks, what's really going to be the next move in a sector that absolutely is consolidating right now? So, Timmy, you know, you mentioned East Coast, West Coast rap, and obviously at its height in the mid-90s, you know, it kind of you know, culminated in smalls. the kind of Biggie, Tupac sort of thing. Yeah, Is this thing headed in that direction? There seems to be a lot of positive sentiment here, a lot of combinations, but a lot of turf wars too, right? Look, the good news is, and if you listen to Boris Jordan, he talked about a company that's going to have uh, sales, combined sales of the two companies of you know, $220 million. Um, you're starting to get real critical mass. That's what these guys are trying to do. So, yes, you're finding, if you notice a lot of those deals we looked at earlier, there was strategic positioning. Either there was a geographic fit that made sense. Either there was a distribution fit. There was a combination of partners that have been good dance partners. And make no mistake, every one of those companies we've mentioned have all been rumored to be with the other one. Um, there's been all kinds of mixing and matching. It's happening now. It's exciting. It's why the U.S. multi-states, I still think, are the best place to play. Thanks for that, Tim. Check Thank out you. Shares of Square sinking after issuing weak guidance. The stock had been on a tear all year. We'll hear from CEO Jack Dorsey next. Plus, grading the beef mm. beyond meat, gearing up for its public debut. But how does its plant-based burger stack up to the competition? We'll put it to the ultimate test when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got an earnings alert on Square, which is sinking in the after-hour session. Deidre Bosa is in San Francisco with the latest. Deidre. 
Melissa, it took a long time, nearly 40 minutes into the call to actually get a direct question on what's really hitting the stock in the after hours. One of those factors, decelerating large merchant growth. Another of those factors, weaker than expected GPV, that's gross payment volumes, the amount of payments that the platforms process. On large merchants, CEO Jack Dorsey said that they're building products that will scale and they continue to see larger sellers self-onboard and take advantage of the broader ecosystem on gross payments volume and competition. Dorsey, he kind of punted again and said that the Square ecosystem is their differentiator. I think you heard ecosystem come up many, many times in this call. For most of the call, the first 40 minutes, a lot of that Dorsey and the relatively new CFO, Amrita Ahuja, putting a lot of the focus on its peer-to-peer cash app, its Venmo competitor. This is where Square is betting on future growth and believes will drive that Square ecosystem. Again, we didn't get any absolute numbers on this, just growth numbers. But without those absolute numbers, we can't really compare it to the Venmos of the world. So that's what we're hearing so far. We'll get back on the call and flag anything else as we get it. All right, Deidre, thank you. Deidre Bosa in San Francisco. Uh, Dan, you like Square here? Well, it's interesting. You know, over the last few months, since that really, that huge ramp in January off the lows, I mean, the stock has really consolidated really right around where it was, where it closed today, in the mid-70s here. And it's interesting because it traded between 50 and 100 over the last year. And that was telling you that investors were starting to get a little nervous about 100 times earnings. Um, that's on an adjusted basis. They actually have a small loss uh, on a gap basis and about 14 times sales. So all those things that are sending the stock down right now are the things that are going to take the stock higher eventually, but they're seeing a deceleration in those metrics right now. It's interesting. Square's loss, and I'm not, su- I'm not suggesting causality, uh-huh. but look at PayPal over that same period of time. I mean, I think that's a stock that's flirting with all-time highs. Very interesting. Mm-hmm. I think Dan sits up for a pair trade, maybe viewed through the option prism on Friday in options action. Maybe you could do a PayPal square. Risk reversal would be tremendous for the show. Well, uh, Thanks for producing that. Well, that, that would be special. Um, and <laughs> yeah, and I will tune in for that. Um, I think in the case of Square, you have, a case, you have a case, first of all, think of some of the high-tech stocks that actually were the go-go stocks in the fall or last year. Um, this one obviously has not come back anywhere back. And, and to me, it's a multiple dynamic here. I still think that the Uber multiple stocks mm-hmm. don't have a home here. I think Square continues to execute on their business. In fact, I think somewhere around $63, you've got a pretty good level on the charts to, to take a nibble. All right. Well, Game Maker Activision Blizzard is set to a report after the bell tomorrow. So, Dan, why don't you head over to the plasma break? Yeah, so a pretty interesting sector here. We know that the whole space has kind of gotten nailed, especially at a time where a lot of alternatives to the actual console guys have done really well, and that's in esports and some of this multiplayer stuff online. But Activision is going to report after the close tomorrow. The implied move in the options market is about 6.5%, and that is versus the average over the last four quarters of also about 6.5%. But call volume today ran a a little hot to that of puts. It was about two times that, as you saw just there. And there was interesting that a lot of the call buying or the most active call strike was in the weekly 50 calls. There was about um, 3,000, 3,500 of those traded an average of about $1.12 or so. And when you see that with a stock at 48, 48 and a half, that's traders playing for a short-term bounce. And why might you be playing for that short-term bounce? Let's go to the charts right here. Look at this thing. It's still down um, about 35% from those all-time highs. The thing obviously topped out last year. Um, but look at this consolidation that it's making here. And so if you're going to buy short-dated calls in 
into that print, you're making a defined risk bet that it's going to break out finally after this long consolidation. Um, let's go look at the long-term chart just to see, look at this outperformance. I mean, one of the reasons, though, when you think about this gap back in November when they guided down for the fiscal year, um, this thing was a massive technical break here. And that's one of the reasons why this stock has had so much problem getting going, especially in a market where we know the NASDAQ is up more than 20% right now. And one last thing, you know, we talk a lot about content. We talk about a lot of these uh, media companies merging. I think all of us on this desk agree that this is some really interesting content, whether it's electronic arts or these guys are take two. So at some point, these guys might start fitting themselves into the equation about what content means for a media company. All right. Thanks for that, Dan. For more options action, check out the full show Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Still ahead as a vegan unicorn beyond meat is expected to make its Wall Street debut tomorrow. Check out our Evan Cam. Yep, that's our multi-talented NBC page picking up some Beyond wow. Burgers for the Best to Taste test. Order's almost up. You won't want to miss this. We are live at the Nasdaq in Times Square. Much more Fast Money still ahead. Welcome back to Fast Money. As we reported earlier in the show, Beyond Me just priced at $25 a share at the high end of the range. According to sources close to Leslie Picker, the comps are high-growth disruptive consumer companies like Fresh Pet, Canada Goose, and Shake Shack. So <laughs> ahead of its trading debut, we thought this would be a good time to, for a Fast Money taste test. So you may have seen our NBC page, Evan, helping out on set, doing Whoa, an amazing look job. look at that. He's that's known ridiculous. for bringing the chair over for guests, but he wears many hats on this team. And that's right. Moments ago, Evan cooked up a look new at that. burgers. Come on. Show it off. And give the review. The so, Evan, hands. come on out. Bring out the burgers. Pop them in. All right. Wow. Very nice Thank job, you. Evan. Fantastic, sir. Goes to Can I get some ketchup, please? Maybe <laughs> <laughs> fresh pepper? Now, you guys have oh, the opportunity time? to taste the burgers. Yes, the plant-based burgers. Thank you, Evan, for cooking them for us. Can I ask you a question? Sure. If this is a plant-based burger, which it is, why do you need the lettuce? For it's flavor. Brilliant. Awesome. Good call by me, right? This is awesome. We're going we're gonna to grade them. All right, sorry. I'm just curious, everybody, did you take a bite of yours, yeah, Dan? I did. You did. I'd, I'd like a little ketchup on okay. here, though. Dan, you're open-minded. Suzuki, you're open-minded about Beyond. Because uh, he's like a millennial. He, took, yeah. he, took, he played the millennial okay, card. Okay, so, so let's, <laughs> let's grade these burgers. Guy, what do you say? Now, I'm a fan of Impossible Burger, by the way. Burger King. Oh, has the Impossible Burger, yes. the Impossible yes. Whopper. Yes. But I digress. I will tell you, I was going to give this a D right off the bat. Really? Without even tasting it. Because you're biased against it. It had to be a D. This sucker's an A. This is actually really? damn good. I'm not, wow. It's the craziest thing. And it has no seasoning. We just no put seasoning. it on a bun right I mean, at I, I, I can't, I'm going to actually eat the thing. This is good. All right. Um, Tim, what's your grade? Well, Kind of smoky, um, has a nice consistency Is it to it. Like? It's meaty. Um, I really could sink my teeth into it. I'm very happy right now. I'm I'm giving this an A, straight up. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. I love it. I love it. It's me. Okay, Dan Nathan. Uh, I'm just going to be really clear on this. I mean, I can't think of any sort of scenarios where I'd t- choose this over an actual burger. So um, the taste <laughs> is fine. I give it a C. If it's, I don't want the intern uh, making me this veggie burger or anything like that. I mean, maybe if you told me there's a good place that could do it. Uh, He's excuse a page. me, a page. I'm sorry. I love it. Um, yeah, it's just not a choice. I'd rather live in denial and eat my real burgers. Can you see, though, a market for this burger for people who do yes. not eat not burgers? Not people like me, but go have at it, people. Dan yeah. Suzuki, what's your take on this? What's your grade? I give it an A, and I think wow. it, it could earn an A plus if you told me that this were actually healthy and I would lose weight eating this, but that's where I'm a little skeptical, but I give it an A. Okay. <laughs> you trying to lose weight? Three A's and a C. Yeah. 
Well, you won't want to miss Beyond Meat's co-founder and CEO, Ethan Brown, on Squawk Box tomorrow morning at 7.20 a.m. Eastern Time right here on CNBC. I'm told he's going to bring plenty of burgers with him. So I'll taste mine tomorrow. And Evan, thank you for for making them. Up next, final trades. All the burgers are gone, by the way. Tim, final trade. I mean, that was such a good burger. I'm going to buy Google. Dan Suzuki. <laughs> Healthcare for all the reasons stated before. Dan Nathan. Yeah, Carter on Fast and Friends the other day made a really good technical case for Ford. I like it. That's very e. funny. Yeah. Las Vegas Sands Casino's doing very well here, Melms. That does it for us. See you back here tomorrow at 5 for more Fast. Meantime, don't go anywhere. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.